Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST-78, the always August record, Black Pyramid. This is the fourth album in a row where it's like a new band, a new LP for the podcast. I'm looking forward to getting into Always August. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that Brant and I may not agree on this one, but <laughs> we we shall see. We shall see. I agree. Brent, oh, I agree. And Brant, we've got a, we've got a special guest. Yeah, John Kiefer's on the podcast tonight, and it's a great interview. Yeah, it totally is. And just like the last few interviews we've had, like there's not much out there about Always August, and it's really it's actually kind of a privilege to have someone come on and tell us like what it was like right there because you just can't find it anywhere else. So it's very cool. I was going to mention about our interviews because, you know, when, when you and I started this podcast, I don't, I'm not sure how much we, we planned <laughs> about what we would do. It's kind of just evolved in, into what it is and I'm sure it'll evolve some more, but as far as guests go, I think we've tried to have one every five episodes or so just to keep it interesting. And But what we've tried, I mean, look, I would love to have Henry Rollins and Bob Mould to help raise our <clears throat> profile. And, uh, <laughs> and for the record, I did ask both of them. And, and I've asked other people that just never got back to me or politely declined. But... I mean, we've had, what, two in a row now for guests? And we're going to have some more coming up. And the reason for that is not because we're changing formats or, or anything like that. I think it's just because we're coming up on some stuff here where there's just not a lot available. And as I said, as much as I'd love to have, say, Henry Rollins, I, you know, Henry's told these stories so many times that you can't really fault him for kind of defaulting to the same, you know, the same stories every time the subject, certain subjects come up. It's just the way it goes when you get interviewed over and over and over about the same things. There's only, only so many, so many things you can talk about. For a lot of these people, you know, they haven't talked about this since the album came out. And probably if they even did it all, it would have been in fanzines and stuff like that. So to me, as cool as it would be to have Bob Mould talking about Husker Du. It's super cool to have people like John Kiefer because you just, you never hear about Always August. So we're going to have some guests coming up. We've got some great ones that I'm really pumped to share with people. And uh, I hope people dig them. Like I said, I feel, I feel pretty privileged to kind of document this stuff that has not been documented. And, you know, we've tried to get some big hitters on here and it's to it's totally fair to say, you know, we're not, you know, not interested. That's all good. It's all good. And even if, you know, we talk about how many times someone like Henry would tell a story, I'm going to listen to a story every time I can find it. And, oh, and for sure. I do. For sure. Yeah, I will yeah. always listen to it. I, I, uh, I just recently watched a, an interview with Bob Mould on PBS or whatever, and it was some very similar anecdotes uh, that you've heard before, but I mean, I'll always listen to it, but these stories that you've never heard before are just killer. And yeah, I totally agree. Like, I can't wait to tell people what's coming up next. Let's say what's coming up next week, just in case people don't listen all the way to the end of the podcast. Oh my God, do it. 
We've got Ed from Ohio as a guest next week. Super big thrill for us to have Ed Crawford on the podcast. We are both Firehose fanatics, and uh, it's a great interview. Yeah, I I pretty much only agreed to do this show with Brent just on the off chance we could get Ed from Ohio and, <laughs> and, and do Raging full on. Yeah. So this is the culmination of a lot for me, and I know for both of us. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was a real thrill talking talking to him and all the people we've talked to. I know I know we've thanked everyone for being guests, but once again, you know, thanks to everybody who's taking the time to talk to us because it's it's such a treat for us because we do this because it's fun. <laughs> and one of the main reasons it's fun is because we're digging up new information. Yeah, I still I'm still waiting for my check in the mail. <laughs> you could be waiting a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you kind of, you did a little uh, preemptive spiel. Do you have any others, Brent? Yeah, speaking of friends of the pod, one of our podcast friends, Andrew Earls, who wrote uh, a couple of books that we've referenced, the story, uh, the Husker Du one, the story of the noise pop pioneers who launched modern rock, and one of yours and my favorites, Gimme Indie Rock, a book everyone should check out who's interested in, in this type of music. Oh, yeah. He sent us a message. This was in reference to the Libyan Hit Squad record we were talking about. I just got another one by them called Fiji, which is good. Okay, awesome. The one we referenced is on a label called Ripping Records, which I don't know anything about, but it, it uh, I guess, triggered something in his mind about a band that's also got a release or two on Ripping Records called Ghost Aquarium. And he sent a link to their Bandcamp page, uh, Ghost Aquarium, .bandcamp.com. I haven't really dug into it, but he says they have a CD and two 7-inch singles. And the the link to the one he sent on their Bandcamp is is a 7-inch call with the A-side. The A-side's called Light Cannot Escape. It was released in 2017. As far as I can tell, it's it's one dude from Seattle. And it kind of reminds me of Eric's Trip or Elevator those uh, Rick White bands, or it's got a bit of a Wipers vibe and definitely a Dinosaur Jr. influence, but I really liked it. Did you check it out at all? Yeah, I knew about Ghost Aquarium, actually. Oh, I didn't did know that they had a CD, and I couldn't find it on their Bandcamp page, but I'm going to keep looking. Um, I've never sought out like physical copies, but it was a good reminder to check them out again. But that, that record... Uh, the other Libyan Hit Squad record that I got, that's on Ripping Records. And so I'm going to start digging into that. And yeah, I like the Ghost Aquarium stuff. I had read it. I don't know why I knew about them, but it was a good reminder to check them out. And now I got to, can't help it, got to check out the whole label now. Yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> the, um, the CD, I'm pretty sure, is a compilation. At least the one I found is called Strange, Com Strange Communication. It is on Bandcamp. And it's... It's, uh, the dates on Physical it. Physical copy though? I don't know. I just, I listened uh, to some of it on Bandcamp and it's really good. And it's the years listed on it are 2001 to 2011. So. Yeah. I couldn't find a physical copy when I was looking at it. And another good thing about Ghost Aquarium is the Q in their logo on the word aquarium has a, it makes an inverted cross like the Mayhem logo. And that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> you gotta throw in a metal reference hey speaking of metal 
Yep. Uh, Mayhem's a metal band, right? Yep. Oh yeah. So speaking of metal, I I can't even believe that this triggered in my mind. They're not but... just a black metal brand, Ryan band. They are t- true Norwegian black metal. Yeah. Okay. You, you have to say that. Sorry. Very, go ahead. Very good. Yep. Okay. One of those ones that probably burns down churches or something, right? Yeah. They're the ones. There's a movie about them that just came out <laughs> called Lords of Chaos. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I just watched well, it actually today okay okay well speaking of metal Mm -hmm. and speaking of movies this is what i wanted to mention that you triggered in my mind and and i bet you you've seen this too or it's on your to watch list that new motley crew movie oh yeah i'll watch it i haven't watched it yet but i will yeah i watched the first 20 minutes and it was just like anyways what's your next spiel well that was a listener recommend the next recommend is mine it's from a band called uranium club or also known as the Minneapolis Uranium Club Band. You ever heard of them, Ryan? I have not. I don't know a ton about their history. It looks like they have a couple EPs. I don't know where I heard of this album, uh, but it's called. It's a full length, and it might be their first full length, but I'm not quite certain on that. But it's called The Cosmo Cleaners, The Higher Calling of Business Provocateurs. It's on a label called Fashionable Idiots in the U.S., and... The, the European label is called Static Shock. I maybe heard of wait, it. Wait, is this, are they like an instro band? Nope. No, they are okay. like a post-punk band in the Gang of Four, pop group, pill, talking heads, like that variety of, okay. of post-punk. Uh, lots of cool ideas, um, awesome cover art. I'm pretty sure they're from Minneapolis. But you should check them out. I think you would you would probably like them. Uranium Club. You can find them on Bandcamp. Okay. I thought for some reason that that was some instrumental band, but uh, I'll check it out. Yeah, those are my spiels. Okay, I only have a quick one um, on top of yours. Just to mention that there's a new Down by Law release out. Yeah, 10-inch, right? Yeah, it's called um, At the Readout. But Readout is spelled... R-E-D-O-U-B-T. Okay. And it's on Pine Hill Records. It's a three-song, 10-inch. It's good. It sounds like Down by Law. I'm glad that there's kind of cranking out some music now, like kind of one release every year. Yeah. Looking uh, forward to more of that. And, I mean, Dave Smalley's um, other side projects are putting out more music as well, too. I can't get enough Dave Smalley, so that's good. That, Unfortunately, that band that you really like? from last year it was in your top 10 oh and the bandoleros yeah 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 that, that's the thing you're talking about no no um sorry i'm thinking about uh his other side project don't sleep oh yeah you've talked about that before yeah they yeah. got uh i'm pretty sure they got signed to revelation records actually for a full length oh seems like i've seen revelation lately like there may be were they dormant for a while i actually don't know whether they were dormant or what. Um, I definitely know that I stopped following that label though. Yeah. I've just, I've seen some ads in like some magazines and stuff. They may have been, there was some weird thing. Um, I can't remember whether it was revelation or maybe it was victory that had to do with streaming services or downloading services where there was some controversy of some sort. I can't remember what it was and maybe it was revelation and they got all tied up in that i don't know there hasn't been anything that's come out on revelation that i paid attention to in a long while that doesn't mean that they were dormant though yeah 
don't know. But New Dawn by Law, they're also touring Canada. Not anywhere near where I live, though, hmm. which is too bad. Yeah. But that's it for me. Do you want to uh, go into History Lesson 1 and speak with John? Let's go on a long, strange trip, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. Let's do it. History Lesson, Part 1. Okay, we're joined on the podcast today by John Kiefer. John, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure. So we're talking about Always August, specifically the debut album, uh, Black Pyramid. So we just talked to Chris Bobst, and he told me something I'd never heard before, that the band was actually called Black Pyramid at first. Is that right? Yes, yes, it, it, it was, and... and, and... For some reason, I, I really don't know why it. Uh, we ended up uh, um, probably just through confusion. <laughs> the, uh, the album ended up being named Black Pyramid, and it, you know it probably should have been the other way around. But uh, but but yeah. So we were initially known on the, the scene as Black Pyramid, and somehow in recording the record, we we vibed on this concept of Always August, which for us was just simply a metaphor for for change okay and uh you know we were just having these you know heavy uh experiences at the time you know things were moving very very fast just in 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 we uh the scene at the time in richmond was was really creative and so there was a lot going on in a very short period of time and uh so uh you know one uh one uh, e- evening of uh, the uh the session of brainstorming around you know on whatever would come to our minds uh, you, you know we ended up uh, uh, uh somehow coming to uh yeah that uh, that it was always august and okay. it's simply because we just had a lot of things happen in our lives in general in august um, uh, which, if that makes any sense, For you sure. know, in this brainstorm, we all sort of started hitting on all these sort of, you know, uh, uh, heavy uh, 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 moments or experiences that each one of us had uh, in our lives that happened in August. So uh, so it became, it's always August. Uh, but the, <laughs> um, the Black Pyramid, I guess, I guess we were sort of, you know, we, we, we were, we were expanding beyond the punk uh, sort of thing, which is where we all started from, because you know we're all learning our instruments, and right. you know we came. Uh, like you said, well, I said earlier, uh, you know, uh, two of us were from me and Lee West were from up in Northern Virginia and came to the DC hardcore scene as non-players, okay. and then all ended up in, in Richmond for. Uh, for college for VCU, is that and, the is um, that the art college? Um, well, it's got an incredible art department right. and, and music department. Actually, it's a, it was a great it's a great uh, just a great spot. It's a great spot for art in general. In fact, a lot of the bands, you know, uh, like uh, you know, one that uh, reached some sort of notoriety was uh, is uh, Guar. Right. Um, but they, uh, they come through uh, 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 as art students. So a lot of the mu- musical bands were actually art students picking up instruments. 
uh, like I say, it was a, a, a great uh, time, a creative time, and a, and a great time uh, to be a young person trying to uh, create something. And uh, me and Lee West uh, had come, like I said, from uh, the Northern Virginia thing, which turned us on to the do-it-yourself sort of mentality. You and uh, Lee, you and Lee we, were. Uh friends in high school in D.C. or uh, in Northern Virginia? Well, a- well, actually, we crossed paths, but really didn't uh, meet each other till we were in Richmond. Okay. And a lot of a lot of Richmond kids ended up going to VCU, just the in-state college and uh, whatever. So there were a, a number of the Richmond scene was an offshoot of uh, Northern Virginia transplants that, uh, you know, had just been 14, 15, 16, going to the all-ages shows, you know, up in uh, D.C. and Northern Virginia with, you, you know, band, bands like uh, a Minor Threat. And, right. And, um, well, Henry Henry Rollins' his group of SOA, State, State of Alert, was happening at the time. And so it's just where we got turned on to the, you know, you can – do it yourself. You know, you you don't have to be discovered by anybody, right. and you can just uh, well, do it yourself. Put your energy into it, and you know, uh, get some instruments, and then get a van, and you know, find places that'll let you play. And uh, so we were sort of part of that whole wave of energy that was going on from like. Well, I guess it probably started around '79-ish, with okay. um, like the the the, um, the native DCers, like Minor Threat and um, and those guys. That scene with Discord Records, and then uh, you know transplants like myself. I come from Nor- uh, New York, okay, and uh, actually grew grew up in in New York, which I guess I actually come to think of it, I was first exposed to like punk shows there. Who who would Man not have been Murphy's Law? That's where I first started experiencing, like getting out of the whole arena rock. Um, you know, being a teenager in the seventies and getting into music. You know, it was Led Zeppelin, it was right. Pink Floyd, and, and and so it was all this arena stuff that seemed way distant. You know, it was like. You didn't do that. It was some somebody else did that. And they were just sure. magic people that came out of the sky or something. <laughs> in high school, we'd uh, I I grew up on Long Island, which was like the birthplace of the suburb. You know, Levittown. It was I mean, you know, it was the birthplace of suburbia. But we had New York within a, a train ride away. So even in high school, we could you know, pay four bucks and get a round trip ticket into the city. Right. And, um, it, and it was, uh, bands like the clash. I remember the clash was one that, that, uh, broke me open. I was a big Neil Young fan. Okay. I mean, you know, still to this day, he would consider my, my personal Jesus, if you will. <laughs> um, and he, he has, uh, continued to show me sort of, uh, a stand up to that, uh, even uh, to this day, which uh, I I love that that fact. Uh, yeah. he, he, his his principles are really sort of just a general, you, you know, just staying true to your thing, 
and not trying to be like somebody else for sure and you know that that whole trip of having trust in in whatever your thing seemed to be that came out of you when you and lee got got the band going were you a part of the the dairy thing the dairy thing uh came uh, about a year or so into it okay so in other words we first got together because we it was fall and it was when everybody sort of found where they were going to live for the school year and we ended up uh, renting a house lee had gotten a um a, a house that uh in this neighborhood called oregon hill which was uh you know it was the cheapest neighborhood around and a lot of artists and musicians okay ended up uh, gravitating there so me and Lee moved into this uh, into this house, and then with it, we brought another friend, which was Tim Harding, who became the bass player right. for Always August. And then um, Jeff, uh, we call him Jeff Junior, and uh, uh, he uh, uh, was a fourteen year old runaway. This and, is Jeff uh, Douglas you're talking about, Jeff Junior. Yeah, yep. yeah, uh huh. And uh, he ended up uh, going to Richmond to uh, uh, see the police at the, uh, co- the Coliseum in Richmond and, and never went back. <laughs> and uh, I think, he, you know, he's getting, he wasn't getting along with his folks in that whole trip. And uh, so a couple of uh, college girls ended up sort of adopting him and letting him stay in their dorm and bringing him food from you know, the, you know, the, the dining hall. And uh, right. so it ended up being me and Lee that, you know, and, uh, and then Tim Harding, uh, who didn't play anything at the time, and then Jeff Douglas, this 14-year-old runaway, who didn't play anything at the time. So it was really just from moving in with each other and hanging out that, uh, you know, I had been playing for a couple of years, and okay. uh, Lee had been playing, you know, uh, for a couple of years doing the punk punk thing. That's how we all got together. What do you sound like at this point? Do you do you sound more well, like a hardcore uh, band? Well, me and Lee had a hardcore band going. It was called Judge Dread, <laughs> and uh, the singer named it after uh, the, uh, the, uh, the comic book, right? Uh, uh, Judge Dread. Which I didn't have any idea of. I just thought it sounded great. I wasn't really a comic book guy. So me and Lee had a hardcore band going, and it was, you know, as loud and as fast as, as we could play. And, and, and Did you play uh, shows with Judge Dredd? Yeah, we did. That's when we first got our uh, experience playing, playing shows. And one of the great things about the uh, scene was um, that no matter what kind of stuff you did, you could find a stage in Richmond to get up and, and, and do it. So it was really an open thing. It wasn't a, you know, like uh, the LA thing where, you know, you'd have to go out and sell a hundred tickets to your friends to be able to play any, you know, at the club, that kind of, that kind of stuff. So it was easy for us to, uh, to begin to, play shows in fact the first the first show well first at least me and lee got our first taste of like getting in the van and driving we'd play in norfolk 
Um, uh, now and again, there's a club there we, we play. Uh, we play back up in Northern Virginia, and uh, there's a, a couple places there that uh, you know we could play at as long and as well as like parties and stuff. Right. And um, did you play with any of the so bigger bands a, from like? You never played with Black Flag um, or anything like that. I'm assuming. No, not at that time. But it was they'd be bands like um, the other uh, the other Richmond bands were uh, like White Cross was right. one, um, Honor Roll. So these were, you know, we're getting write ups in like Maximum Rock and Roll, the, the hardcore uh, papers, and um, and then uh, uh, yeah, some of the uh, the DC bands at, at the time so you had SOA and you had right. Minor Threat. So how do you evolve into Black Pyramid then? Is is it like a conscious decision like let's start a different style of band? Really it was I think the most organic uh, way that you could start a band and that was we had all in the fall moved into this house together. Like I say me and Lee had a band and we'd rehearse at the house. Right. Uh, Jeff Jeff didn't play, but me and him would um, uh, like go in the practice room, and he'd sit at the drums, and we'd just we'd put on a we'd put on a, a song and, and listen to it, and then turn it off and try to play it, you know, as, as best we could. And you know, of course, it was totally primitive and a mess. And that would be anything from Jimi Hendrix to Toxic Reasons, or you know, uh, a right. Black Flag, and and so is. Through that situation, just started jamming together. In other words, just you're sitting at at home, and it's like, okay, well, me and Lee are playing, but if, you know, we want to play. He wanted to start playing guitar. He was a bass player. Okay. Um, in in Judge Dredd, and uh, we were we were a, 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 well three piece band, but the singer was Judge Dredd. So at this point, it became two guitars with Jeff on drums and then uh, uh, Tim uh, would be sitting in the, uh, Tim Harding would be sitting in the living room after getting off of work and uh, eating his food and, you know, drinking a couple beers. And, and it was like, well, um, you know, Hey Tim, listen, you might as well come in cause we need a bass player. You, right. can, you can play bass. So, you know, it was like we were open enough. He was like, well, okay, you know, and, and he was very musical. I mean, he was had a great ear and loved music. So, um, you know, I just showed him where to put his fingers on, you know, on a couple things. And and we went from there. He really uh, developed into just being an incredible musician on, on both bass and um, uh, saxophone. Okay. Um, which which was another SST band down the road, uh, which was Hotel X. You played on that project too, I believe. Did you not the Hotel X project? I, I played on two on two of the Hotel X uh, discs. Okay. That had a changing lineup, sort of each each uh, disc, and it was in a way like the old you know the old jazz bands where you know it. it it, it might be, you know, a Miles Davis might have, you know, on one album he's got one group of guys, next album he's right. got another, or uh, so it was a rotating kind of kind of thing that way. You had uh, a, at one point you had described to me uh, always August as SST's hippie band, <laughs> so I'm curious if right. like th- this is something if this is a 
something people ascribed to you or if it was something you you were were you happy um, or is that is this something you wanted to be to be known <laughs> as it uh, it, it, it just was right. it, and, and the way i consider uh, uh, hippie was just that we didn't put labels or and we were conscious not to limit what music came out and and we had all like uh you know grown up listening to all different styles of music so really the change in direction was 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 very simple in that um in these jam sessions we would have at the house now you know me on guitar lee on guitar tim on bass and and jeff on drums and uh we combined that with um uh, a, 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 some psychedelics right and uh which uh there was uh that's where the name black pyramid came from and it really sort of you know is one period of time where this uh water acid came around with a with a stamp with a black pyramid on it uh, okay and and really like a good portion of the Richmond scene, which was, you know, we would all sort of come together under this punk or art kind of um, deal. Uh, and I mean, you know, virtually all the band, all the bands at, right. at the time, so the early eighties and mid eighties. And, but th we had basically, it was a Christmas, uh, maybe 84 to 85. And there was about a week that we just hold up in the, in the, in the, you know our 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 house and basically eat, eat some uh, you know dose and we would just play for hours and this <laughs> week of Christmas to New Year's was I mean it just it, it just uh, you know without sounding I don't know I guess you know to toot your own horn we were realizing that we were having like moments of music that were as good as any music that had ever been been played <laughs> right and and it was a real revelation we were doing I... totally yeah. and so it was like okay we can do this and we we you know we'll just and, and it was there was no thought process in, in, involved other than one of us would start doing something and the next but one of another of us would just hear it and you know i guess the best way to say it is instinctually start adding in what seemed to go there now did and, did a uh, lot of the these tracks come out of that that week-long jam yes yeah i was the uh uh that's where the, the hippie thing came in like i said earlier i was a neil young freak were you guys so, were you guys I, deadheads? You know, I'm, I mean, I hate to bring up the Grateful Dead because well, I don't I don't know where I, I'm sure you got compared them, to them a lot, <laughs> and I I, right, I don't know where well, you stand right, with that. Right. Some people are accept it, was, it, some people it was, reject it. So where where do you fall with that? It, it was a mixed blessing. Yeah, it was a mixed blessing because in this the sense of the openness, really, the, unfortunately for the uninitiated. The Grateful Dead, people will associate with their fans, like their image of them, are of the deadheads. Right. And, and 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 really, you know, even you know the band, they were just making the music that was 
authentically and organically coming out of them. Right. And so they're definitely on, on my, you know, at a coming out of the arena rock thing, they were a huge band to me. And so the songwriting on that first album really was influenced by uh, Neil Young as far as li- lyrically and the Grateful Dead as far as we played open. We didn't put any limitation on what came out. Right. And and so in a way, um, we were genuine psychedelic. It was genuine psychedelic music that was happening. So when you recorded this album, it, it does, absolutely, yeah. So when you recorded this then, how how structured are the songs? Were you did you because I I know I noticed that you recorded it in your living room. So I'm curious like you're not right. you're not an, under huge time constraints like a lot of these SST bands, they have 48 hours in, you know, uh, right <laughs> in some studio and, and they, a certain amount of money and that's a certain right. amount of money, you know, to spend. Yeah. So we were lucky enough to um meet fellow who, you know, became part of uh the group really and he was a Floridian and that was Kirk Henderson so um, he was basically oh well he had gone to like some two-year recording school in Florida or something and but he had an eight-track tape okay and some uh, some equipment so yeah we were able to just set up in in the living room and really had that freedom to just turn it on you know hit hit record and then afterwards go back and see you know what the heck we had and then sort of edit so did you do there. did you do multiple takes of the songs or did you just kind of no, edit for the most you know? part no and that first the first album it, it's made up of of a of a sort of a half songs that like I would come in with some lyrics and a chord progression Right. Or maybe a little riff, and then I didn't even know enough to tell anybody else what to, they should play. So every you know we each would sort of find our own way through it, and um, everybody came up with their own part. So I would yeah. So the lyric and a chord progression was usually the the basis for about half the songs. But then there is some like. Uh, uh, there's Soweto on the, the first record, which right. uh, is just a bunch of um, uh, little hand percussion and and where it was and it was one of the things that we we were consciously trying to evolve and develop is the ability to do a performance with nothing predetermined. So we were finding that we could do that, that it could come out with um, a legitimate effect of a song form so that it didn't just seem like, you know, random, you know, random noise. For sure. Because what, what, what we didn't like, and it, I did in any way, is like a lot of, you know, we, in, try, in discovering music and, and the art form is like avant-garde whatever right. that is and um you still I, wanted to have a, a song structure within the within the jamming right yeah right so in other words that influence of like you know uh, uh neil young or something for sure you know where there was a lyric and that gave you an idea you know the lyric could give you a 
a sense, uh, an emotion, uh, and that would inform, you know, our playing. And each one of us would be free to, you know, determine what that was going to, what that was going to be. So there are some some songs on the album that were just spontaneous, and then yeah. others that I, you know, uh, have a chord progression and I, I think if it if i'm corrected the ones that i came in with a chord progression and a and a uh lyrics would say written by okay john Kiefer. gotcha and the other ones would be yeah all of our names or black pyramid or something right and, then, and are and you subject, are you singing john i know everybody's um, listed as yeah, vocals but yeah for the most part i was yeah. left alone at the microphone <laughs> <laughs> um but uh yeah, so I'm singing, and, and Tim does a lot of backup singing. In fact, on the first album, we we did a, a good bit of, of of sort of backup vocals, which I, I think the next couple we didn't do as much of, and I'm not sure why, but um, but I know that that makes that first album uh, sort of special for me, and it was special for all of us. I mean, it was the first time we we did any of this. Oh, and and. And most of those were recorded, uh, you had uh, asked this earlier, were recorded in, you know, one one evening and uh, uh, the main tracks. And um, and, uh, and there was, uh, there was uh, uh, mushrooms involved in, in that. Okay. So really that, that recording is uh, the main tracks and, and for... I think some of the over some of the backup vocals were done like the neck, you know, maybe the, the subsequent day or something. Right. But um, the main tracks were really from one session. It's a really interesting record in the sense that, I mean, you've kind of described yourselves as relatively, you know, beginners as musicians, especially you know the rhythm section, for example. But yet there is right. there are multiple instruments on this album there's well just the the four members are listed as playing uh, flute xylophone kalimba i don't even know what that kalimba. is kalimba pan pipes right. what 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 is a kalimba is it a percussion instrument a kalimba is a african thumb piano oh okay and it's a little wooden box with the little metal uh keys if you will and you sort of pluck them down. Yeah, I've heard of it yeah. now that you describe it that way, yeah. And a lot of them were just like, you know, sort of like kids' instruments, you know. Um, they weren't like fancy studio, um, you know, professional right. uh, instruments. Right. Um, especially this percussion was on Soweto in particular. For sure. But we did have a friend, a trumpet player, John Mila, who really added some great touches with the trumpet. Uh, it was interesting because um, it's where I realized that musicians, for the most part, come from uh, one of two places. They either come from the place where they learn from a page, or they come from a place where they learn uh, just, you know, inst instinctually like and by ear yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Often, well, there's a there's an old music uh, school joke. It was how do you get a guitar player to shut up? And uh, the uh, the punchline is uh, put a put a piece of music in front of him. <laughs> and 
<laughs> for a couch. Yeah. And then, but then the other thing is, how do you get, you know, the uh, classical or the studied musician to, to shut up is take the music away from them. Right. Yeah. And John, the trumpet player, John Mueller, he was somebody who came from the page and was an incredibly uh, accomplished, um, you know, studied uh, uh, trumpet, you know, played professionally. And but, but he was open enough to hang out with, you know, us crazies. And it was funny because, you know, at first it was like, OK, yeah, we're going to do this song. And, you know, and he'd be like, well, you know, uh, what should I you know, play and I be well, whatever you want to. <laughs> and <laughs> and, it, and at first I realized, and I experienced this later, later on in my life, especially teach, like teaching guitar to teenagers right. was, you know, like teenagers will often, you know, they're getting this, they're feeling their oats, maybe 15, 18. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, they know the world at this point, but, you, they, you, but when you say, you know, well, what should I play? And you tell them whatever you want to. It's like they freeze. Right. Um, <laughs> because they've never had that, like, given that free, freedom. So right. so with John Mila. It was probably the complete opposite of that for him. Right. Yeah. And, and he was open enough that he didn't run away. Yeah. And, um, and, uh. So eventually what I would do is I would just, you know, play whatever you want. Maybe I would give him a key. I'd say, uh, you know, the key of A minor. And uh, and that might be the extent of the, the direction. So, um, and he eventually, he eventually, you know, just, uh, he listened to enough jazz, to, I think, to, uh, did he, and he was able to loosen up, and and you know it's funny because he'd look like a music, uh, a band director up on stage with us. Oh, he played and, live with um, you. I was going to ask if he did. Uh, yeah, we were lucky enough to do um, uh, a couple of tours with uh, our sort of extended band. Okay. Where we have uh, the trumpet, John on trumpet, and we had another uh, uh, friend who uh, played a saxophone, tenor, and. He, and then another friend who played uh, trombone, and uh, on subsequent, especially the second record, they they play a, they play a lot on. Once again, you know, we gave them free reign to come up with their parts, which were really it was really exciting for us. It was like you know playing with real musicians, you know. For sure. And and I think that we didn't lose that sense of the not schooled or just I don't know how you would say it. But just free, yeah. you know, uh, authentic expression at, at the moment. I'm sure very so, liberating for them to, to experience that as well. Right. And, and it, 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 it totally is. In other words, that's what we experienced like when we first moved in the house together. Right. And over the course of that winter, you know, no musical training or any reason to think that we were musicians we were able to liberate ourselves enough to to do this thing where it comes down to just the fact that music works the same way in our brain as language and we don't we learn to talk before we ever get a, a book in front of us and and have to read that's true i mean you know 
often it's four, three, four, five years old before we even put symbols in front of us. So we sort of came from that place the same way we learn how to talk. And, you know, a five-year-old can say some pretty cool stuff. <laughs> yep. um, Here's what Chris Bopes told us. He says for alternatives, they kind of got word, I think he said through Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, that SST wanted to sign alternatives. So he phoned, right. uh, he phoned Chuck Dukowski at Global or SST or whatever and, and made small talk with him and was hoping Chuck was going to bring it up, and he did. And he, this is according to Chris Bopes. Chuck said, and can you also tell, I'm not sure if you were always August by that point or, or still Black period, Pyramid. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know either, yeah. But uh, he, according to Chris Bopes, said, I, we want to sign them as well. Do you know how he heard you guys? Yeah, well, what happened was, um, it's another example of how things just fell into place um, at that time period. In our little neighborhood um, of Oregon Hill, it was called, like I say, there were a bunch of uh, other musicians and art students, you know, didn't have trust funds. Maybe some of them did. But uh, anyway, old broken down houses from, you know, like the turn of the century. These, uh, it, was a, it was a neighborhood for um, workers from Tredegar Ironworks, actually so from the 1800s. And um, eventually they, well, they made like uh, like armaments and wrought iron. Richmond was known for like wrought iron fencing and, okay. and stuff like that. So it was housing, these row houses built for the workers. It ended up being like this open door policy. I mean, literally you could, you know, sometimes, you know, you just wander into, you know, some of our other friend's house. Maybe we woke up in the morning, didn't have any coffee. Go over and just walk in and make some coffee and see who's up, you know. Right. And, uh, so anyway, one of the houses was um, this fella. Uh, well, it was a couple, Jeff and Mary Beth, and uh, they're still together today and uh, have now raised a couple kids. And at the time, though, they were just another, you know, some other cool people living uh, uh, in, in the neighborhood. And he was unique because he raised uh, a um, exotic birds. Okay. So in his backyard, in fact, that was some of our first employment was, he, you know, he'd employ us to build bird cages back there for his birds. And uh, so we were Black Pyramid Construction, <laughs> construction Company. <laughs> and you could go over to, to Jeff's at any time of day. I mean, three, four o'clock in the morning, you'd go there and he might be out, out back on top of the cage uh, going, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's going on, Jeff? Man, I'm trying to get this snake. You know, the snakes are coming eat the birds. And he's up <laughs> there with uh, his pistol that he called Jesus. <laughs> and you tell him, Mary, get Jesus. <laughs> uh, it was a general hangout place. Like, like I say, any time of day and night, you could go over there. It'd be people hanging out. And, um, and so uh, I was over there one, one, one uh, evening. And somebody, I don't know who it was today, but they had, in fact, it might have been Jeff. He had two tickets to to see Gone. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, Greg's band, Gone, was playing at, you know, one of the local clubs. And um, we had done a, um, uh, being the do-it-yourself, uh, you know, spirit, we had done a cassette recording and, you know, 
you know, made cop made a right. couple dozen copies and of this you know, recording. Hawking, hawking those things. Some of it was okay. That was a combination of things. There might have been one or two of those of that record, but yeah, maybe a couple of songs were from the eventual record. Okay. But then there was some earlier stuff and just club. I mean, it was uh, everything had been recorded on a boombox. Oh, okay. Well, I tell you, it's surprising how good some of those boombox back then would re- record. Oh, I know. And, uh, <laughs> so, at any rate, um, you know, it was like, um, you know, it was, Jeff's like, you know, I don't want to, you know, anybody want want these tickets, you know? So I was like, yeah, man, I'll go. I guess previously, some point. Uh, within maybe a month or so before this evening, uh, we had a one of those little fanzines called Maximum Rock and Roll. Yep. And I think it was put out from the West Coast guys or something. And there was a little article, and it said, Greg Ginn is a deadhead. <laughs> so read it, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'd go see the dead at you know, University of California back then, and... So that like blew blew my mind because you know we had by that time I mean we had SST was like it was our go to record company right you know it was like if, if if something was being released by SST it was worth checking out for sure and uh, you know we loved Meat Puppets and and you know Black Flag My War had had just come out you know that previous year that year i guess and um i know i i loved that that album it, it showed me that um in fact it was when still when uh, me and lee were doing judge dread because uh it, it showed me like a, an avenue that i could do i could combine the things that i that i loved musically right um that sort of fused the that hippie with the punk thing so i'm like all right well oh so as we're sitting around the, the living room reading this article, going, "Holy shit, Greg Kim's a deadhead," and here he said he's fully admitting it, <laughs> and uh, in print. And so I, I, I said, "Well, you know what's going to happen, guys?" I said, um, "We're going to give get Greg a tape, and he's going to hear us, and he's going to uh, want us to do an album for him, right?" And uh, for SST. And, you know, we're all like, yeah, uh, you know, one of those pipe dream things. <laughs> so then a, a month later, here's Jeff with a ticket. Uh, and so I scoop it up and go home and catch a, catch a couple copies of the tape. And I head down to the show. I hadn't been planning to go to the show. I, I really loved Greg's playing at the time, you know, and, and, and that band, too. That band was a... I, I thought it was an am- amazing. I always, I was just uh, amazed and envied their these California guys that Black Flag scene. The ability, it was like they were just everything they had went into it. Yeah, you know there was nothing else in the world but that, but that stuff. I mean, it wasn't any. I I don't know how how to explain it, but it was pet, it was full on. It was pedal to the metal. They believed every note they were playing. And it wasn't for any other reason except to get off. For sure. And, um, you know, I listened. And it's the first time I'd heard Gone. So, you know, that was uh, 
that was my mind blowing experience there. And then after the show, you know, they're packing up, and Greg's over by his, you know, guitar amps, and he's kneeled down, putting, you know, packing stuff up. And so I, I go over and, and um, you know, I said, hey, Greg, I said, hey, listen, man, I've got this tape of my band, and I said. You can do whatever you want with it. You can listen to it. You can throw it away. You can record over it. You know, whatever you want to do, man. And and he looked at me totally sincere and said, I'll, I'll, li- I'll, I'll listen to it. And um, That's awesome. So I said, cool, gave it to him, and see see you later. And, and the mission was accomplished. And then I, we sort of put it out of our mind until about six weeks later when, yeah, Boat comes over and, it might have been one of the other guys in the band uh, uh, too, but um, came over and said that uh, he said, "Man, you guys won't believe it." He said, "He said, uh, you know, we were just down in I guess it was North Carolina to to play, and and uh, and Greg's, but you know, gone gone was playing, and, and he said that Greg's been listening to nothing but your uh, tape on the bus." <laughs> <laughs> and uh that's how oh and you know and they you know they want they want to do do a record so we had already recorded the basic tracks of of what became black pyramid right and uh so i don't know that we had much to do really with that other than master it down and send it send it off you know needless to say it was just a very uh, an incredible time of synchronicity of, you know, this was all within a period of, you know, a year and a half or something, right. two years at the most, for this this part to go to go down. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't do, do it again. I've, I've never experienced the same sort of uh, flow with, with any, you know, in any musical thing. I've, I've had some great, you know, musical experiences since with people but uh yeah it was it was a, it was a magical magical thing and and without a doubt in, in, in this you know sounds it sounds sort of uh, wacky but um but really psychedelics um allow were our teacher yeah through this period of time and um and it wouldn't have happened without without it. In fact, it, in fact, I think that's one of the the things that that going out on the road. It, it, in fact, it never was totally the same because, well, you know, we didn't have you know Owsley or our, you know our, our our you know road chemist to go go along along with us, and also SST. You know, we we're they didn't know what to, like what to do with us you know like who, who did you who did you play with when you were on tour did you did you tour with another sst other, band yeah it was mostly other sst bands and then um you know they try stretching out and, and god bless them they you know they had worked out really i mean single-handedly they had worked out a a tour route like this is they used to call it back in the day the black circuit was the chitlin circuit right you know, for like blues and stuff down here in the East Coast and the South, they called it the Chitlin Circuit. And so a Black Flag definitely, they had single-handedly with them and like the Minutemen, just a couple of, the first couple bands, 
really mapped out and developed all the relationships of uh, around the country to set up tours. And so by the time we were on it, um, you know, they would just say, how long do you guys want to go out for? And they usually would do like two months and then, uh, and then they would uh, get back, uh, you know, a few weeks later and say, all right, here's your, here's your itinerary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where, where the club was. <laughs> and, you know, of course, no, like, uh, no, no internet or, or, right. or cell phones. It was like a phone number, and we'd have to find a payphone. You know, you call the next the next city kind of thing. And there wasn't any kind of real, um, you know, advertising. Right. Uh, it was you know, uh, um, handbills, flyers on the on the telephone pole kind of thing. So who did you um, who did you tour with on for this release? Uh, well, it was never like one band it would almost be like different bands each you know each night i see so we played with i mean a good portion of the the uh sst bands and firehose was big at the time so when we yep. we'd say we could stay a couple weeks out out there there's so much that place is so huge just to la to For san sure. francisco and um dinosaur jr um, some you know great shows with them. Yeah, I was gonna say that's um, that's a good fit. It is a good fit. Yeah. And um, we had one show in, with them in um, uh, San Diego, and it was a pretty big club, and it was right on the beach, and where they had these big garage doors that you know they could open up and be out on the patio or whatever. And um, you know their whole thing was well to sound like a dinosaur. Right. And it was you know. It was about being loud, and this this middle aged woman like ran the place, and they got about I don't know four songs into their set, and it, oh, and it was their first show of their tour, and they had just driven from Massachusetts to San Diego, <laughs> and 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 you know basically had to then immediately set up and play the show, and. Uh, you know, this woman, you know, goes goes up and she's like, you know, motioning, you know, turn down, turn down. And, you know, Jay Jay was, uh, you know, just sort of ignoring her at first. And and then, uh, you know, he about the third time, he's, you know, sort of like resigned, okay. And he goes over and instead of turning down, turns he turns up and turns <laughs> up quite a bit. So at this point, the woman goes over to like the main the main uh, circuit breaker board and and just shuts the whole club down and the place almost goes into this riot, you know, because <laughs> it's like, what's going on? And uh, I just remember that, you know, the chaos at, at, at that point. And it was, it was just like, this is so awesome. <laughs> and so uh, afterwards, we end up at, the, at Howard Johnson's, you know, and we're all sitting around this big circle table and you know, Carol. You know, it's like sort of bummed out, and everybody, uh, we're all burnt out, and and, and Jay is like, "This sucks, man. Let's just go home." <laughs> 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 and just the thought of like, you know, after driving to California, and then, you know, one half of a show, and then turning around and going home, <laughs> which they did, and they were able to talk talk about it, you know, right. continuing uh, continuing on, but. Uh, but yeah, so dinosaur, 
Opal was another SST oh, band yeah. at the time. Yeah. There was a lot of sort of just, in a way, missile, I don't want to say miscellaneous doesn't sound good, but miscellaneous bands yeah. um, that were going on. Um, Soul Asylum. Right. Uh, what about Angst uh, and Slovenly? Did you play with them? Yeah, yep, Slovenly. Yeah. Um, I remember getting paired with um, uh, St. Vitus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there was... <laughs> Some of these where, you know, it's the total, like, heavy bands and, and then us. And, you know, it's 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 hard to pull. Like, you know, we we could deal with it. But a lot of times, audience, it's, it's tough to, like, drag an audience through that big of a change. Yeah. You know? Yep. And, and you know, people come and they, they sort of expect, you know, they're paying their money. They sort of have an expectation, maybe one band or another, you know, whether it be coming for us or coming from them and then you know the other half of the show is like something totally different which you know we didn't have any issue with but it's we found it hard to drag people through some of that stuff for sure and uh, um that's what i mean by that the time they didn't know really what what to do with us and and god knows they they tried but but they had you know really they had set up the the uh you know the punk thing mainly and uh, as far as the, the the punk circuit, yeah. And uh, you, you know, of course, you know, you can look back and say with this and that. But I know that you know it was like the Grateful Dead back to that thing. It's like in a way that was maybe the audience, but even we were too sort of punk for them, you know. The, the, and that's the Dead thing too. Like Deadheads, if it's not the Dead. It's like they don't want to hear it. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So in a way, you know, they were some of the most closed-minded, you know, audience, even though they w- weren't. And, you know, at one level, they were very open-minded, yeah. you know, because dead music is just, I mean, that was their own thing. So anyway, you know, they, they, like I say, and the, the, the whole alternative thing hadn't fully opened up yet like yeah. nirvana hadn't hit yet yeah because even bands like that we could have um you, you know we could have matched up with um so we were kind of like a couple years too early it's a it's a bit of a common um, theme with with a lot of these bands slovenly i'd say is the same thing right yeah and, right. and angst yep. as well yep that's yep. right that's right and then one of the things that I, that i loved about um like Gin and and the, and the, the the label was that at this point all these independent labels were being scooped up by major labels, right? But being scooped up and sort of buried, you yeah. know. So yep. it was almost like to get rid of the competition for the bands that they signed. So you know we saw this going going on, and and so by being independent, it meant for the label it's like well i remember chuck saying you know a few years later he's like man we just man we just so wished that we had like the budget to like really promote you guys yeah because that's you know that's really what it what it takes you know is at least at first is you know well you know an investment of capital so it was trying to do it just on the music and in a 
a circuit that really wasn't ideal. It just added up that uh, it was it was a tough slog. So you know, then human nature comes in, and I know I I had met uh, a, a, a sweet girl that ended up being you know my my wife you know for thirty years. And she smelled a whole lot better than the band did. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it just started, started going different ways. Right. But, but like I say, just to keep it on the positive tip, because um, uh, certainly we had, you know, drama at the end, and people uh, start asserting their ideas and over another, and that it wasn't what we were at all. The only re- way that magic happened was because we, cause we weren't. Um, we, we managed to, to remain selfless for, you know, four or five years. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that's, that's, to me, that's a, that's a success story right, right there. You know, I think that's maybe a good spot to leave it there, John. Uh, would you maybe consider coming back for a part two? I'd love to get into it with you, uh, with on the next release, maybe. Yeah, that'd be fine. You know, as long as uh, as long as you can pay my price. <laughs> I'll talk no, to Ryan. We'll see what being, we can do. I'm just being <laughs> No, that'd be great, man. Yeah. That'd be great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot. Well, awesome. So yet again, a great interview. You know, a really nice guy who gave up his time to speak with us, and basically told us like almost everything you would need to know about the band. And about this release, like right from the horse's mouth, right from John's mouth. So very cool. Yeah. I was just looking at running down the names of the people on the who played on it, but I don't even think we need to do that. He didn't really get into Elliot, the spiritual advisor, that much. No, I forgot to ask him about that and and the cover art. And I, I also had a, a thing in my questions. I wanted to ask him if he knew anything about Tim Harding playing on that Office Ladies release that came out on new alliance records oh yeah right 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 next time john said he'd be willing to come on again and um i bet you he's got some very cool stories about the next record too because he definitely definitely had some stories about this record right yeah you want to hear some of my my favorite stuff from the interview (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) there was some there was some great sound bites in that interview oh yeah for sure man i wrote some of them down that i really liked uh, awesome that they talked about coming up through DC Hardcore. Yep. Judge Dread. Have you heard? Have you ever seen that band name in like on gig posters or? I'm trying to remember if I ever saw them in like American Hardcore or anything like that. Not that I can remember. I'm and I'm sure they weren't the only Judge Dread either. But who knows? Yeah, that's true. They probably weren't. Pretty excited that Hotel X keeps coming up. Looking forward to getting to that one. No doubt. One of the things that really struck me i mean it did with uh the chris bobst interview is also but really in this one is the diversity of the richmond scene i've talked before about you know scenes i think maybe in the the angst episode when we were talking about that compilation the rocky mountain low i really love scenes like that that are super diverse and accepting yeah you played with you know, the other six bands that were in town at the time, and it didn't matter what their sound was. You yeah. know, you were all you were all underground trying to play shows. Yeah, for sure. Kind of like that in Toronto and Vancouver too, right? Those scenes in the yeah. 70s and 80s. Maybe a bit of a smaller 
scene allows for that maybe i well i think so i mean i think you know you've got kind of the same 20 to 30 people and they shuffle between bands and stuff for kind of these overlapping three-year cycles and when they're isolated you're less likely to you know kind of go all right everyone let's we're all gonna play hardcore now right yeah here's some quotes that i that i really liked i I found john pretty quotable he said if something was being released by sst it was worth checking out cool that there were people that were it makes you wonder how many people went along with sst as they evolved i think it probably was up and down but hard to know i mean we're it's interesting going through these releases in numerical order although they're not necessarily chronological order but you can still see patterns where you go through the black flag the husker do the minimen era and then there's this you know gaggle of different stuff between that era and then boom firehose sonic youth you know a, a whole different kind of wave is coming I guess so, it's, you're you're right. It's different when you're checking it out, maybe in real time. I mean, guys like you and me started, and I would say probably most people who came to the label after all this stuff was already released started with the famous stuff. Oh yeah, like the bands you just mentioned, and then went back and bought some of the other stuff just because of the label it was on. So interesting to hear somebody you know who was checking this stuff out in real time kind of saying that they anticipated new releases by SST another quote I really liked holy shit Greg Ginn's a deadhead (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's a well known fact now but I'm not sure it was at the time you know yeah and when he's talking about Black Flag he says they believed every note they were playing and it wasn't for any other reason but to get off that's very true one of the most insightful things, parts of the interview for me, was when we were talking about a band that was ahead of their time. And he's talking about the punk rock circuit that Black Flag and the Minutemen kind of forged, and other bands, of course, but how they went on to play that circuit, along with some of these other bands that we've been talking about lately, like Slovenly and Angst. And his quote is something along the lines of, we were trying to do it just on the music on a circuit that really wasn't ideal. Hmm. And what he means by that is that club circuit at that time was really, I think, still geared towards punk bands. And it wasn't yet the alternative rock. I'm guessing the majority of the people hadn't yet branched out, you know? Do you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? I guess. I mean, the only thing that that I'm kind of thinking of, though, is... I mean, although it may have been the case that a lot of clubs were not used to, you know, something like all, Always August, when it would come and play that circuit, Flag always brought someone to expand people's horizon yeah. with them on tour, right? Yeah, that's true. And But I do know what you're saying in the sense that, like, these clubs, they were primed for punk, but when something like always august came and you had like 
a, a big jam band type sound going on. I'm sure it was people probably were just as unprepared for it as they were for, you know, St. Vitus, for example. That's true. Yep. You want to talk about the record? Sure. Oh, I want to mention like the one thing that I loved other <laughs> other than when John was talking about the sessions for when they wrote this music. I love the origin of the band's name. Yeah. And just how like everything seemed to happen in August. Everything <laughs> was always in August. I just love that. <laughs> yeah, you know? it was pretty co- pretty cool. I love that it's it's like it seems like pretty casual, but it actually has had some like really deep meaning for them. So oh, for sure. I thought, I thought that was cool. Yeah. That's it. Let's talk about the record. Sure. History lesson part two. So first track on side one is called Freedom Flight. Ryan, let's get this. Let let's. Do you want to talk about? Do you like this album? Not really, man. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think you would. It's just not your, your bag. I mean, I'm going to be talking about the Grateful Dead quite a bit when we go through these tracks. I I did bring it up to John in the interview. I mean, they, they are clearly influenced by the Grateful Dead. There's no question about it. Lyrically, uh, the guitar tones they use, the song structures, the way the guitars play together is very uh, reminiscent of Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia. Even, John Kiefer even sounds like Jerry, uh, Jerry Garcia sometimes when he sings. So yeah, the, the favorite part I liked about this record for me was actually the uh, the sections that I trumpet in it. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> I I noted that too. I, I I agree. But I mean, I like the Grateful Dead, so I don't consider myself a deadhead because I never saw them. But I mean, I have every studio album and a and a fair amount of the live stuff too, and and I listen to them fairly frequently so it, it wasn't a big shock to my system and I'm a big Neil Young fan which you you are not correct yeah but I mean I can I can still totally appreciate it for what it is I think it's a great piece of art this album but it is it's just not the type of music that I'm drawn to period yeah. and uh, but I can appreciate it for sure and yeah. there are some highlights as I Uh, I mentioned a moment ago. So why don't we go through the tracks? Okay. Freedom Flight, credited to the entire band. For this one, when I was listening to it, I listened to this a lot uh, this week. And I'm not sure I would have picked this out if I hadn't. Well, A, I listened to it with headphones on last night. And B, for the first time after talking to John. And I think I can hear like a shift in the room sounds on this song. What I'm saying is I can hear maybe some edits oh yeah Hmm. probably wouldn't have picked up on that without talking to john though yeah i didn't listen to it with headphones on i maybe should have yeah i i dosed as well before i before i listened to it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm sure you did i don't know it's a good song i like john's leads i'm assuming it's john i guess i shouldn't say that because there's two two guitar players him and lee uh it sounds like a big muff almost on the lead yeah, it's fuzzy. That's my note. I yeah. my notes for Freedom Flight were a fuzzed out hippie jam. Yeah, uh, track two. No, no offense. Yep, track two, interrogation. That one's a co-write between Jeff Douglas and Tim Harding. Really cool guitar interplay on that one for me. The thing that really struck me is if you know talking to John, you really get the sense that these guys were novices 
in particular the rhythm section. And I don't think you would know listening to this. They're both the rhythm section is pretty awesome. The bass playing is really good. The drumming is, I would say, you know, pretty stellar at times. Uh, this one has some trumpet. I, I love the effect on the trumpet. The middle section of this song has a buildup in it that's really killer. Yeah, I found, like, I mentioned this already, the trumpet is what actually sticks out to me in the album because I find that the way that it comes across, it, it sounds very, very kind of Miles Davis 70s For influence sure. to yeah. me. I, I agree, and, yeah. And that will always catch my attention, no matter what setting it's in. Yeah, well, I think that's part of, they're probably playing the trumpet through, I wonder if they had a pickup on it and were playing it through amplifiers, you know? Something. Yeah. They de it's definitely not uh, acoustic. Uh, track three, Pan's Lament, written by Lee West. Uh, this is the one that has Bruce Blizzard on banjo, I'm assuming just a friend of the band's. I don't think we got into that in the interview. It has some nice acoustic playing. I'm assuming it's Lee since he wrote it. I almost think he has like a capo? Capo? How do you say that? Capo? Capo, man. Yeah. I'm assuming... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's probably right both ways. Right. We'll call it a capo. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because it the guitar has like a mandolin sound at times, and it really reminds me of uh, Led Zeppelin. Specifically oh, yeah. the track The Battle of Evermore off yes. Led Zeppelin 4. The Queen of Light yep. took a bow. That's the one. <laughs> and uh, it's this one's an instro, except for the backing vocals. And I like this one. You know, man, I haven't listened to Zeppelin for ages. I feel like i got to listen to that again. You definitely and you know do. What? Yep. The problem with me and Zeppelin is I bought that terrible box set from the 90s where all of the tracks are all out of order from the actual album sequencing oh. you got to buy the jimmy page remasters from a couple years ago man those are they like the triple lps well i just bought the cds i've got it's like i've got how many versions a couple of each one but i mean the cds are super cheap if you go to like a box store oh yeah you know you can get them for like 12 bucks and they've got bonus tracks that are not essential but i bought them all and they're worth yeah. it. I got to check out Zeppelin again, actually. Yeah. Good reminder. Yeah, this one, you know, I mean, there's some world music vibes going on in some of this stuff, almost. Like Zeppelin well, for, had. For me, for this song, once the banjo kicked in, what year did this come out? 86? Yeah. You know, you know what? I don't know what it is. I never listen to the radio, but it's always on in my wife's car. And there's all of this, like, neo folk music on this one radio station that she listens to i don't know if you know what that brand name is like bands like that where it's kind of like i don't know it's kind of like alternative folk and then when the banjo kicked in on this i was like damn that sounds a lot like some stuff on the radio right now probably bands that like came after mumford and sons or something like that that's that's the scene i'm talking about yeah yes not my thing no me either but it's it was reminiscent of that yeah. when I when the banjo kicked in and I was like I don't know I wonder if any of those bands know about Always August doubt it <laughs> they're not cool enough man yeah probably right track four Swim With Me by John Kiefer this was a, a highlight for me I kind of consider this to be the album's centerpiece uh, this is the one that sounds a lot like a real laid back 
Grateful Dead jam. And the last side on side one is called Spacing Out, again written by John Kiefer. Uh, the guitar interplay on this one is definitely influenced by the way Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia played together. Uh, it's got some cool jazzy drumming that I really, really stood out for me. It's a good track. Flip it over on to side two, and we've got three songs. Definitely a sequencing choice, I would say. Yeah. Oh My Mind is the first one written by John Kiefer. Again, I hate to keep talking about the dead, but this one is very much inspired uh, by the band. John definitely sounds like Jerry Garcia to me at times. There's part in this song where some of the players are playing in in the wrong key or at, at opposite keys, and it sounds really bad. <laughs> but then they go back into the main riff, and it and kind of like it sounds good. It sounds like it should be there, and maybe I, I'm curious if they if they picked up on that when they were putting putting these songs together. Hmm. Yeah, I just. It kind of, I'm not sure if it was people going into a different key. For some reason, to me, it's like, I think those guys need to tune their guitar. Maybe. Yeah, there's, uh, again, the def- the interplay is definitely influenced. And even the guitar tones, the lyrics, the way the, the two singers are harmonizing together is all totally influenced by the Grateful Dead. Uh, the second track, Soweto, is credited to the, to the whole band. I think John talks about this one in the interview is... This is the one that has all the the pan pan pipes and the flute and the xylophones are kind of panned hard right and hard left, which which sounds, you know, it's a really good recording considering they did this basically with a mobile unit in the band's living room. This song reminded me, I think I've mentioned Erto before on the the podcast, like Erto Moreira, the uh, Brazilian percussionist. Okay, yep. And and some of the stuff that he does, like real, like he's a Brazilian jazz drummer, Erto, and he used to. Uh, I think he was married to Flora Purim, or 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 maybe just did a whole bunch of music with her. I don't know. I think they may are maybe are married, um, but he plays like a zillion weird uh, percussion instruments, things that sound like birds, um, mouth drums all these weird things and and like Soweto is obviously uh, a reference to Africa and it definitely has like a world music type of vibe but I don't know the percussion and the vibe of this song reminded me of Erto. It's a really good song it's uh, they kind of have some hand claps keeping the beat it sounds really good with headphones on and uh, it merges into the the final track of the album Half the Time which I really liked I am a sucker for epic jams at the end of albums kind of like uh swa the evil and the good remember that one yeah on sex doctor same kind of thing for me they i love it when bands save the epic jam for for the last track this one has more trumpet that sounds great it's a killer closer to the album for me written by john Kiefer. do you want to talk about the artwork yeah man i'm really regretting not asking him about uh the cover art i would say it's watercolor hey i think so it looks you know, like it. From a distance, you could, you, you might think it's pastel or even chalk, but I would say it's watercolor. Yeah. It's kind of an abstract painting with some pyramids and some spheres and like some waves. I think it's supposed to look psychedelic. And it, oh, I, the, the album cover 
totally suits this band and the oh, record. Yeah. That's that's what I was going to say too, and <laughs> and the logo too. There's a hand drawn logo. I think it's credited to what's her name, Katie. It just says lettering by Katie. the The band's logo on the cover and the writing on the back. It looks like something you'd see on one of those posters from like San Francisco, like a Jefferson Airplane poster from the '60s or something, or a Hendrix poster. Yep. Cover art is credited to Walton. I really wish I would have asked John about that, but I'm pretty sure Walton does the artwork for for the next Always August. So it's got a similar look for sure. Yeah. So I'll ask him about it next time. And then there's uh, a little like it almost looks like a maze on the bottom of it. I wonder if that's like the band's logo or something. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of those. I don't know where they are. What I'm thinking of, but there are those weird designs like you can only see from way up above the earth of like a spider and an ant and Mm. it kind of looks like one of those mayan maybe it's not even mayan or something but i don't know i wish i could think about my wife would know what the name of this those uh they're not crop circles they're uh these weird designs that no one knows how they got there on the earth's surface and Mm. um i think they're in southern america or something Probably Chariots of the Gods would be able to tell you how that got there. What's Chariots of the Gods? That's that book that was written in the 70s that talks about how aliens like created the pyramids and all that shit. Oh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it legit? It Well, you want a dose before you read it. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Yeah. I have a Grateful Dead CD where of them playing at the pyramids. It comes with a DVD. And when you fold it out, it's got a 3D thing of like the pyramids on the CD. Oh, really? Heavy, hmm. eh? That's heavy. Well, you know what I like to do when I dose is read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, the sure. number one thing I like to do. It's just like, oh, man. I can never put down a good book after I dose. Speaking of dosing, I wonder if... <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds so ridiculous coming out of your mouth. <laughs> I wonder if the Black Pyramid logo on the back cover of this is the logo that's on, that was on the Black Pyramid blotter acid that they were taking. Well, he said that it was a like a Black Pyramid-shaped whatever, but... I'm, I don't think that that figure that's there could find its way onto a blotter of acid or something. Well, they, u- they used to put pictures on them, man. I know, but that detailed? Yeah. How big is a piece of acid? Is it that big? Well, you could buy a big tab of it and then like sp- split it up or something. Oh, okay, sure. What about dead wax, Ryan? Let me see. I actually didn't even look this time. None on side A, but that's not the whole story. None on side B. That's a letdown. Mm. I thought there would be something like, you know, the secret is in the pyramid's door or something like that, you know? (laughs) That would be cool. You know what's good about you not liking an album, though? Why? I get to pick the ballot result. Well, it's not like you don't every other episode anyway. That's true. Give me a break. Ballot result. Do you have a pick, Ryan? 
Would it be Pan's Lament, perhaps? Uh, you know, I would actually, if I had to pick one, I would go with Interrogation. I thought that was, you know, again, not my not my jam, this stuff, but I thought that was a good jam, right? Yeah, it was good. I liked Swim With Me, Oh My Mind, and Half the Time. So 80% of the record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like this one. I mean, again, it's not, you know, it's... It's no raging full on. No, but it's good for me. It's good. Yeah. Yep. I'm gonna. Well, that's good. I hope. I hope more people get turned on to it. Actually. Yeah. I'm gonna go with "Oh My Mind," but any of those three could have been the pick. On the oh, on the B side. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty epic B side, I would say. Yep. Well, right on. Even though not my cup of tea, I'm actually really interested to hear what the next Always August record sounds like for sure. Yeah, I bet it sounds like this one. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> hey, uh, Ryan, speaking of dose, what's next week? Get yeah, it? Well, get it? Yeah, I get it. I get it, man. It's a, it's a, We haven't had Mr. Watt on from the band Dose for a while, uh, but we've got him in the Firehose record, Ragin' Full On, SST79. We've also got Ed from Ohio on as a guest, which is huge. This is one of my favorite records. Like when we talk about, you know, what is a 10, uh, for me, other than Husker Du and I Against I and the Minutemen uh, that we've been through so far, this one is an absolute 10. It might even be an 11. I just love this record. Can, there, can, we, can it go to 11? It's one louder. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you don't want to listen to two uh, middle-aged men splooge all over a record, like, you should just tune in for the Ed from Ohio interview and not listen to the rest of next week's episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, it is fair to say, though, that, like, Firehose is not only are they really meaningful to each of us, it is actually one of the main bands that you and I have bonded over the years, and... It's just an insane record, insane debut album, insane yeah. story. And we've got Ed from Ohio, so everyone better check that out. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.